0: It's good to have a female Marxist, you know. I, It's true, like, a lot of the stuff maybe I'm more interested in is more the economic-y kind of stuff, but it's nearly all men.
1: Yeah, I know. I've lived with this for a long time. Look at Look at the index of my book and how few female names there are there.
0: Hello. And welcome to the 83rd episode of From Alpha to Omega. Today is the 11th of February, 2018, and I'm your host, Tom O'Brien. This week, we talk again to Professor Helena Sheehan about her book, Marxism and the Philosophy of Science, A Critical History. Verso Books have just released a new edition as part of their Radical Thinkers series. This week... I have to thank the new monthly subscriber, Camille G, and a donation from a previous guest, Colette O'Neill of Bialtona Cottage. Please check out her site, it's well worth a look, and she's written some great books about her time developing her permaculture homestead. And of course, a shout out to all the other monthly subscribers. I've also started a Patreon page, which I'll include the link to below if PayPal is not your thing. If you are listening on YouTube, please, please hit the subscribe button and give the episode a thumbs up. It will undeniably usher in the final revolution. Before we start the interview, I have a couple of quick points to make about Marx's dialectical materialism that we kind of glossed over in the interview. Hopefully this will help those people who are new to this topic like myself. If you go to the Wikipedia page for dialectical materialism, it lists... Engels' three laws of dialectics, which are really Marx's too. People have tried to make out that Marx didn't agree with Engels on this stuff, which is not true as far as I can see. These three laws are, one, the law of unity and conflict of opposites, two, the law of the passage of quantitative changes into qualitative changes, and three, the law of the negation of the negation Right, so what the hell do they mean? Well, let's look at the first one. The unity and conflict of opposites. So this idea is essentially telling us to look at the system as a whole that we are analysing and its individual parts and to try and understand it from a systemic level how these interconnected parts interact to influence the overall behaviour of the system. The second law, the passage of quantitative changes into qualitative changes is what scientists today call phase transitions. An example might be how water transitions from ice to liquid water at a particular temperature and from water to steam at another temperature. The change of maybe only one degree in temperature can suddenly cause it to turn from, say, a solid like ice to a liquid form or from liquid to steam. That is, a simple quantitative change, i.e. just one degree, can cause a, a sudden dramatic qualitative change, i.e. from solid to water, or from liquid to gas. This laws can also be described by what's known as the paradox of the heap. This idea from Greek philosophy is that you have a heap of sand from which grains are individually removed, and if you have the assumption that removing a single grain does not turn a heap into a non-heap. The paradox is to consider what happens when you do this enough times that there's only one grain remaining. Is this single grain a heap? And if it's not a heap, when did it turn into a non-heap? This, again, is trying to show how a simple quantitative change can make a distinct qualitative change to something. This emphasis on phase change, which is a radical change or shift, is very interesting. Modern systems theory and complexity theory places great emphasis on discontinuity and places it right at the heart of reality, existing in tension with this idea of equilibrium states. For Marx and Engels, this emphasis on radical change led to their belief in the need for a political revolution as opposed to a political reform. Indeed, it's important to note that modern mainstream economics' reliance on equilibrium throughout their theories has been shown to be totally incapable of modelling the reality of our economic system. So, And finally, we have the law of the negation of the negation. This can be described by the tendency of things to find higher levels of complexity. So if we look at evolution, for example, this idea is that things tend to become more complex and show higher and higher levels of development, from single-cell bacteria to multi-cell bacteria and so on to reptiles and mammals and humans, etc., etc. Marx uses this particular law of dialectics to observe capitalism as a superior form of organisation to feudalism, and he envisages communism as as the higher level of social organisation to capitalism. Now, people also talk about Marx's historical materialism, which is his methodological approach to historiography. I think that historical materialism can be seen as the application of these core dialectical materialist concepts to historiography. And it's essentially a development of these ideas to a specific field. I think I'm right when I say that. I hope I am. One final thing to note is that Marxists seem to me to use the term dialectical in a way which, to me, is equivalent to the idea of thinking kind of systemically, as in thinking about things in the whole. In the interview, I use the word dialectically, and that is the sense in which I am using it. Anyway, enough waffle from me to the interview. So I've been reading, uh, trying to get into Marx now for the last few years, reading, you know, three volumes of Das Kapital and all this sort of stuff. But one thing that I hear a lot of discussion or talk about or maybe around is dialectics and dialectical materialism. You've written a book on the history of Marx's philosophy of science. Can we talk a little bit about what exactly is this dialectical materialism? What were the main components of it?
1: Uh, materialism is a philosophy that believes that all that exists should be explained in material terms. That the natural world, the human world, needs to be explained in terms of the natural and human world and not in terms of a realm existing outside it. In other words, for natural ex- explanation as opposed to supernatural explanation. It's this idea that matter is really all there is. And of course, matter includes consciousness as the highest form of matter, but there's the idea that consciousness and even the things that we consider spiritual come from matter. So that basically is materialism. Um, Dialectics, well, dialectical materialism is an attempt to uh, distinguish between the different forms of materialism. Uh, in Marxist texts, it's a difference between a mechanistic materialism or a positivistic materialism and uh, a more processive contextualist materialism. It's a higher, a more complex form of materialism, really, because um, positivism uh, mechanism tends to be a more reductionist Form of materialism, just you know, matter as as bits of things. It makes it hard to explain the interconnections between all the the fragments of things and the dynamism between all of the various things and and, and the creation of uh, higher and higher levels, interactive levels, higher and higher forms of matter. So this is this is where the term dialectics comes in. I use the term dialectics fairly sparingly because there has been a tendency to use it in a kind of mystifying way and even sometimes in, in the history of the left in a kind of politically opportunist way. Um, I note in my book that uh, during all the twists and turns of the common term when policy lurched on policy to its exact opposite next day and some kind of honest comrade would ask how could this be believing in, you know, common sense logic um, and empirical facts. He would be told you're not thinking dialectically, comrade. Uh, And it was a kind of mystification of, of, you know, um, justifying what couldn't, it was a matter of justifying what couldn't easily be justified. So what I mean, what I think but I would rather say sometimes, instead of saying dialectical, would be intercontextual, dynamic, that kind of thing. It, a, a relation to the interconnectedness of things and the dynamism of things. So when someone like me goes and looks on, say,
0: Wikipedia about what is uh, dialectical materialism, they tend to put three kind of major points I was wondering if you could discuss them when these are the points I think that Engels put forward, and when he was writing
1: about dialectics. These three laws of dialectics, you mean? Quantity, quality, and negation of the negation. What's the other one? Um, in um, Communist Party classes, Marxist philosophy usually begins with these three laws of dialectics, and it always reminded me of the Catholic catechism you know there there's a, there's a certain elementary truth in it, but it's always seemed to me the wrong place to start. Why is that? well, I wanted to I thought the natural place to talk about you know what was Marxism uh, wasn't about you know kettles boiling, but about forces of history and the relationship of philosophical socio historical forces. And I would start when I was lecturing on Marxism and I wasn't sort of confined to, you know, the Communist Party syllabus with why did Marxism arise in the stage of history? But, of course, this was in terms of already teaching the history of ideas um, and the relationship of previous ideas in the history of philosophy to the socio-historic forces that gave rise to them. And I saw Marxism as emerging on the stage of history as being the beginning of a voice from below, uh, as a voice of those who labored in formulating a worldview uh, and speaking on the stage of history. So I thought that was the more, you know, logical, appropriate place to start. I just thought, it's not that I, I I don't think that the three laws of dialectics are nonsense, um, but I just think that the way they played out in uh, Marxist education uh, for several generations. They, it just tended to be too catechetical. What do you mean by that? I suppose this, is, again, is a, a product of my time. Um, when I went to primary school, and this would be true of almost everybody my age, um, almost anywhere who was raised Catholic, um, our education started with the catechism, and it was you know memorizing questions and answers. Who made you, God made me? why did God make you? you know what I mean like that It's kind of memorized questions and answers and sometimes you know uh, when memorizing the Ten Commandments uh, when we didn't even you know understand what the words meant like thou shalt not commit adultery. We were six years old and you know it was it wasn't the kind of world where anybody explained what adultery was. We thought it was you know urinating in the woods or something like that, you know or peeking at somebody else when they were getting undressed, you know. So I think a lot of the introduction of Marxist classics in, in party education was kind of like this like memorising formula that weren't well understood sometimes.
0: I had read some systems theory, complex adaptive systems stuff in my spare time, and then I read Marx. And when I was came to reading Capital, I, I found them very similar in their style, As in, you know, looking at things from a systems level and looking at the interaction. Yeah, and the the connection of all the different parts and how different phenomena can come from, you know, the interaction of parts and stuff like this. So when I read these dialectical laws, when I read them, I was like, my God, this this to me is like a, a 19th century version of systems theory, essentially. That's kind of what it felt like to me.
1: Exactly, yeah. Because it's very systemic, Marxism is very systemic, and
0: it's about everything. Exactly, compare it to, like, if you study marginal utility theory in school or economics. I did a, a maths degree, and we did some mathematical economics, and it was, I found it amazingly kind of positivist or whatever. It was very little to do with what the real world was. Say, compared to Marx, when you read it, you feel like you're getting a complete systems view of the system. So when I read these laws, I just I found it it kind of clicked with me for what my instinct
1: was for what Marx was trying to do. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. This is really my attraction to Marxism because um, I, I wanted to have a complete worldview. I wanted to have a way of thinking that was a thing. And of course, I came from this. You know, I came from Catholicism and it explained everything. And then that fell away for me. I ceased to believe in it. And, uh, you know, I, I, you know, went from one thing to another. I, I, I searched very thoroughly. Um, there was like a decade between when I stopped believing in Catholicism and when I started believing in Marxism. So, you know, I built myself up a worldview almost from scratch and was moving towards Marxism without, you know, Without it being quite Marxism, if you know what I mean, um, I sort of went through the whole history of philosophy in my head. From the, I, I felt after I lost my belief in Catholicism, first of all, I felt, you know, as if I had fallen into an abyss because it was the basis for my thinking about everything. And so I had to lay foundations and learn how to think about everything all over again, and so I very systematically studied the history of philosophy as a way of working my way through that. And I felt, in some ways, as if I was sort of emerging from feudalism into modernity, because a lot of a lot of respects, the Catholic worldview, even in the 20th century, was still very feudal in its mentality. Um, and so I you know went through all the histories of the modern period and came to Marxism. But I had already worked out a worldview that were, that I called uh, naturalistic, um, so it was about you know natural as opposed to supernatural explanation, uh, that was contextual, that affirmed that the interconnectedness of things and that was processive. I didn't actually get these directly from Marxism, but from say American pragmatism, uh, naturalism, process philosophy. I was very into John Dewey. And at the same time, um, I became active in the left. Um, I'm a child of the 60s, and I was in American universities in the 1960s, and there was this whole atmosphere. Well, first, there was an atmosphere in the Catholic Church, this uh, questioning that began with Vatican II, and was some of us that initiated a process of questioning that took us right out of the Catholic Church. And also into secular universities. Uh, But it was just an atmosphere in the wider culture in the 60s that was questioning everything. Just everything was up for grabs. Everything had to be rethought politically uh, and, and philosophically. It wasn't only that Catholicism fell away for me, but my whole belief in America. And the whole Cold War political mentality fell away for me too, and so I had to rethink absolutely everything from the ground up, from the most basic, you know, philosophical premises to um, the various ideological positions, the political ideologies that were playing out at my time, and I went through that very passionately and and very thoroughly in the 1960s and eventually it brought me to marxism but not until the early 70s i I actually only became a marxist when i came to ireland
0: that's a that's unusual how did that happen
1: yes i know well, I was, also, I, was, I was involved in the, all the usual things in, in the U.S. New Left, the anti-war movement and feminism, and we, we started to get very interested in national liberation movements and the rest of the world and all of this, and Ireland was in the news, and I then started moving in Irish Republican circles uh, in America. And then I decided I, I was doing a PhD and I had a national fellowship. So I, you know, I was at the thes- at the level of writing the thesis. And so I could kind of go anywhere to write it. So I got a one-way ticket uh, to Dublin, not really knowing quite what I would find. But I, I wanted to uh, to look at the Irish left. And so I went to 30 Gardner Base my first day. And I was uh, involved in the official Republican movement. And um, that was uh, in the process of becoming Marxist. Uh, There was a debate about various positions, but there was a, a lot of focus on Marxism. Of course, this was after the split.
0: So this would have been the official IRA versus the provisionals?
1: Yeah. Um, And of course, that's why the split happened, was that, you know, um, one part of Sinn Féin IRA were moving to the left and some even moving towards Marxism and others just wanted to stay with armed struggle and Catholic nationalism. Uh, They're the the provosts and the officials were the ones moving to the left. So that split had already taken place by the time I came, but I was very definite that I was joining the officials. So I was very active in the officials. That's actually where I became a Marxist. But I was leading up to it for a long time, if you know what I mean.
0: So in your in your book, you go through a lot of reasonably high-profile scientists that became dialectic materialists. Did it have much of an effect on scientific development, both in Soviet Union, or was it just something that was, their hat was tipped towards, you know, they tipped their cap to it? And in the West, did it have much of an
1: impact? It had a huge impact in waves. When I started studying this in the 1970s, I became very fascinated with British Marxism in the 1930s um, and scientists, Um, such as John Desmond Bernal who was incidentally from uh, Tipperary um, and uh, J.B.S. Haldane and uh, Hyman Levy and you know these were world-class scientists they were fellows of the Royal Society in Britain and uh, they were internationally known also there were movements such as that in France of Paul Langevin and uh, Frederick Joliot-Curie and uh, people like this Um, there were there were really world-class scientists that were thinking philosophically and politically uh, about science and uh, c- and came to marxism i found them really quite fascinating when i was doing my research for this book but in the soviet union and throughout eastern europe there were also many people doing philosophy of science who were scientists i found this interesting because philosophy of science in the west was a kind of narrow methodologism. Whereas in the East and, and in the West, where people had were doing philosophy of science under the influence of Marxism, it was a bigger thing. It was more about worldview and not just methodology. To think about the world and and to draw philosophical conclusions from the results of the natural and social sciences and an argument that Marxism could do this in a way that other philosophical positions couldn't
0: how much idealist baggage was there in the materialist dialectic? To me, when I, I read some of the stuff about it, it, it seems very Hegelian. And that stuff tends to kind of turn me off or hurt my head. I never can understand what's going on. The the language of it seems quite, quite idealist compared to how materialist the actual ideas were. Yes,
1: it's a tension in the history of Marxism and itself out in different thinkers and in, in, in different ways, there, you know, different degrees of emphasis. But Marxism does come from the whole history of philosophy through Hegelianism, uh, because Hegelianism is um, it has a strong emphasis on process and on the whole, rather than the parts, just the parts. And of course, this is a very strong thing in Marxism. And, uh, and Marx and Engels themselves came through the Hegelian tradition. Then there's this other stream which puts more of an emphasis on empirical knowledge and the results of the natural sciences. Now, Marxism is the synthesis of these two tendencies, uh, a tendency to put a lot of emphasis on empirical investigation and particularly on, on the results of the sciences and to generalize that upward. But it also is part of this philosophical tradition emphasizing the whole, and different thinkers combine these aspects in different ways. Uh, But it's interesting, at one point, uh, Bernal, the scientist said, he thought it was time for Marxism to stop coquetting Hegel. Um, And I would be sympathetic to that. Um, I'm very much into, you know, process and interconnection and into holism. But I do think that, you know, some of these texts are too, too idealist and too mystifying and too Hegelian. But that's, you know, uh, just different Marxists put, you know, the emphasis in, in, one, in one direction or another. But the best Marxism is a synthesis of these traditions. Um, if you remember, since you've, you've, you've read my book recently, um, in, in the early days of the Soviet Union, there was a debate that is precisely this, between the, a group who were called the Mechanists and the others called the Deboranists, but it was, you know, the, the Deboranists were, were uh, more Hegelian and, and more more in the Hegelian direction and emphasizing more the dialectic, whereas the other group were more into the empirical sciences and and emphasizing materialism. So it's played itself out in the whole history of Marxism and still does. Uh, but it's a matter of, of you know, not um, all or nothing but you know how how do you synthesize these two different traditions these two different emphases and the best marxism is synthesizes them both in of course the way i think they should be synthesized
0: do you think if marx was around today and he was doing his research do you think that he would have less of the hegelianism well
1: I, I, I mean, maybe the Hegelian language. I don't know. I think I I don't think that way. I think that Marx was a man of his time. Uh, he came, you know, through the period that he did um, in, in German intellectual life where, you know, the, the Kant versus Hegel was the big debate. And they came down on the side of Hegel. And that was his intellectual development. But then again, it, it doesn't need to be mine uh, living in a different century. I mean, it's part of mine. Know what I mean, but I, I'm I'm not where he was. I didn't come through it in the way that he did, you know, there there are, you know, decades it was more than a century now or further intellectual development in, in all fields, including in the, the natural sciences. You know, just because you know, it was just because it was that important to Marx and Engels doesn't mean that it needs to be from me, even though I consider you know, the way I think to be in continuity with the way they think. So it's been part of an intellectual tradition. Um, But Hegel does not need to be, for me, what he was to Marx.
0: That makes a lot of sense. Let me ask you this. Today, when I hear people discussing about uh, dialectical materialism, very little of it seems to be be about science. It seems to all be about dialectics with Hegelian language. It seems to have lost the focus on the science. I don't know
1: if is that a fair comment? I think it is. Um I regret this myself. I've been, you know, going to various conferences in the last decade, for example, say the historical materialism conferences in London, which are fantastic, very broadly based and covered a wide range of topics. But in the philosophical sessions, well it's beyond those conferences, it's a bigger thing than that. But I think there's an assumption among contemporary intellectual Marxists, that there are two streams, uh, the Althusserian and the Hegelian. And I find this extremely alienating because I am definitely neither of those. Um, And yet I don't think what I am is something marginal. I think that, you know, what I am is something much more the mainstream tradition than either Althusserianism or Hegelianism. Uh, a lot of it is a failure to pay the kind of attention to science that previous generations of Marxists did, uh, and I, I regret that. Another a good reason why there's another edition of my book, I hope people will, you know, think more about you know, this other this other tradition, which also, you know, includes, you know, lots of debates and, and you know, people pulling this way and that way, but certainly with uh, much more uh, attention to, to science than is there now.
0: Yeah, I was going to go to the conference a couple of times, and I just couldn't do it the last few years, but I was looking at the, the list of all discussion and, and the lectures that are on would I be right in saying there wasn't, would there be not even one on modern science?
1: No, that isn't true. Um, there is a stream going through there, maybe not every single year. There, there There's usually some stream uh, going through it. In fact, I, I've been directly involved um, several years in, in speaking about that, being on panels, speaking about that.
0: What percentage would you think it is of, of say, that?
1: Well, it would be minor. It wouldn't be a... a It wouldn't be a strong presence. Some years it's stronger than others. But um, I'll say this from the beginning, that it was part of their conception of what they wanted the Historical Materialism Conference to be. I was contacted very early when that first started, you know, asking me, could I speak at it? And it wasn't so much because of me as because they wanted this dimension to be incorporated in it. So it's more a reflection of how few people there are uh, working in the area these days than, you know, their own intentions, because the, the, the programme of the conference is formed by, you know, who, who comes forward to do what. It is a small percentage of people who, who have come forward to speak in that area and to form panels in that area. So it's a reflection of the wider state of things.
0: I found very interesting reading your book, the importance that Darwinism had for Marx and Engels
1: yeah it's it's part of this whole orientation to you know keeping your pulse on the, the the science of your time of course that's harder and harder to do in our times because there's so much more of it and it's so much more complex but that definitely is uh, is is extremely important in in the thinking of 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 marx and engels and of course the whole idea of evolutionary development not just in the biological realm but in the socio historical realm This is core, absolutely core to Marxism as a way of thinking.
0: There was quite a lot of people who say famous Marxists who denied that dialectical materialism could be applied to the sciences and that it could only be applied to sociological
1: things. Yes, that's what that's what um, got me into my book, actually, was that particular debate came to be called the dialectics of nature debate. But this idea, did Marxism was Marxism only a theory uh, about human society or was it a whole theory of everything, including nature? And that's, that's what really got me hooked uh, on the idea for my book. I started with the dialectics of nature debate and then started this whole socio-historical account of a whole series of, of debates about the relationship between nature and history. And whether Marxism was just about human society or whether it was about everything. And of course I felt very strongly that, you know, you had to have a theory about everything and, and Marxism was that. Uh, that was my attraction to it in the first place. The, the place where I thought my own thinking up until then in working out my wor- world view, uh, the place where my own thinking was weakest uh, was about science. So that's why I decided to explore that and that's, that's what led to my book.
0: It's quite fascinating reading your book because the history of all the debates that went on through the years goes up to, I think, essentially to the just about post-war and that, like the the history of what happened to like the philosophy of Marxism, you know, in the Soviet Union and the West, it 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 nearly seems to prove Marx's theories. As in, you see the political forces coming in, and they do try and change his ideas. The reasons behind these changes are all based in in the economic system.
1: Yes, absolutely. So, you know, so um, I, I structured the book around debates not only within Marxism, but the debates between Marxism and the other intellectual trends of the day, but a lot of the debates even within Marxism are about incorporating uh, the other intellectual trends of the day into Marxism in one way or another, or developing Marxism in, in the direction of uh, the, the other intellectual trends of the day. So I thought this played itself out in a really interesting way, but it was never just about philosophy. The debates were always about other things at the same time and about, you know, socio-historical forces beating underneath those debates. And that's the kind of history that I tried to uh, articulate in the book. Um, and it's also the way I always taught history of ideas, because um, in, in the beginning, uh, when I learned about the history of philosophy, it was as if, you know, uh, one philosopher had an idea and then another philosopher heard that idea, but then had another idea and responded to that idea. And it was as if the history of ideas unfolded out of itself all down the centuries. But that's not the way it happened. I mean, that's one level of how it happened. But it was always about uh, a wider, deeper socio-historical process that was being articulated uh, in and through the philosophy. It was always uh, about other things as well as the philosophy.
0: Yeah, it was interesting that you have a big chapter in there about how there was a lot of debates and trying to meld Kantian epistemology into dialectical materialism. When I read those debates, I'm also thinking at the same time about, say, the German Socialist Party, the SPD or whatever. There was a kind of a split between the revolutionaries and the social democrats, and it nearly seems like not strictly split down those lines, but you can see that argument is
1: also this other argument at the same time. Exactly, they were they were very they were interconnected, not in a simple way, in a fairly complex way, but you could see, and and sometimes there were interesting crossovers. But you know, the the people who took the, the side of Bernstein rather than Kalski and the the political debate also took the Kantian side rather than the more orthodox Marxist side in the in the philosophical debates. It's it's you know quite interesting how that unfolded.
0: Yeah, I was just reading some reporting on some scientific research there and it was this guy he's this idea about the origins of life and how it evolved and so he's kind of set up these computer simulations where they're simulating a big vat of different mixtures of different chemicals okay and then they have a heat source or a sun or equivalent or whatever hitting these guys and observing what happens to the structures that develop and you can see that certain kind of characteristics evolved that are higher order chemical reactions which are used to increase entropy and this guy is saying this is the model of maybe how life evolved and it it struck me as an incredibly dialectical materialist idea
1: yes Yes, well, you know, the seminal work on on the, the, discovering the chemical origins of life was done by uh, Haldane and by O'Parrin, uh, who were both Marxists, and it's not unrelated.
0: Yeah, it seems it seems to me that like that is such a dialectical materialist way of thinking about things systemically. And you know, you know, I was surprised when I went up and looked then on the, the Wikipedia philosophy of science. There's not one mention of Marx in the entire page. And it seems quite astonishing.
1: Yeah. Oh, well, the introduction to my book is a rant about that, as you know, um, about this whole conception of, of philosophy of science that's so narrowly construed and doesn't include this very, very formidable tradition that's Marxism.
0: That that idea as well of the origins of life uh, building that way and, and matter trying to formulate itself in higher orders of organisations when we look at that idea from historical materialism of communism being the higher order of organisation from capitalism and it's struggling to to try and, and form itself, maybe Marx is wrong. Maybe communism is not the next form, but it does seem like there's this constant battle in society as well, playing itself out. When I read your book and I was reading all this stuff about dialectical materialism and thinking about, say, the Communist Manifesto, it really made my brain whirl... <laughs> I don't know if there is a question.
1: <laughs> no, it's, 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 it, no, it's just interesting to hear the effect of all that. You know, the the buzz of it. I I've been living with Marxism a long time, but when I was in the stage of you know working out my worldview, I was just constantly buzzing in that kind of a way. So today we we still see
0: that kind of idea of the proof of the pudding in in looking at how Marx is. Ideas were mashed and distorted due to, say, socioeconomic realities at the time. We kind of see that continue today like with... Well,
1: developed developed as well uh, sorry, developed as well as distorted you know what I mean? But there was positive and negative in the onward history not everything that's of value in Marx was already there in Marx and Engels
0: That's that's very true. Uh, We see like say, you know, this kind of development of postmodernism and Marxism which is, I don't know if it's dominant now It, it may be dominant in most kind of pop Marxism things that you might read. So it You see,
1: it's playing itself out again now in in a new form. Exactly. Yes, that's true. It's very, very true. That's that's the version of this in our times. I mean, most contemporary thinking, other than Marxism, is either some form of positivism, neo positivism, or postmodernism. These are the contending forces of our day. I mean, there are all kinds of nuances and complications and everything, but these are the three big ways of thinking of our time. It kind of boils down to this. And in most humanities departments, you know, postmodernism is still very strong. Positivism is stronger in, you know, the science and technological departments, though it doesn't articulate itself as such. Most positivists don't kind of define themselves as positivists because they don't really You know, articulate what they're about philosophically at all. And a lot of the quantitative research in the humanities is also very positivist, but postmodernism is still very strong. And there's also, you know, a kind of postmodernized Marxism. And there are a lot of younger left intellectuals who think that to put emphasis on identity and race and ethnicity and gender, that you need, you need uh, postmodernism to supplement Marxism or to displace Marxism. But I think that Marxism itself has the capacity to conceptualize all of these other dimensions in a way that's superior to postmodernism. Postmodernism doesn't add anything to Marxism for me, but an awful lot of younger left intellectuals think otherwise.
0: I also find it kind of striking as well, from knowing what little I do know about philosophy of science, say somebody like Kuhn and his idea of paradigm shift. How much of that has just been stolen straight from Marx and just repackaged?
1: It's an inferior explanation of the history of science and how it's developed to what was already there in Marxism. But because so many scientists and people interested in science knew so little about Marxism or knew so little about actual history, that uh, Kuhn came along and talked about people doing normal science and then, you know, all of a sudden it was the paradigm shift. And, but, you know, that's, you know, that was already there in a much richer form in Marxism for, for decades already. I found it very interesting to see the whole reception of Kuhn's book, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. But it was, you know, because Marxism was so unknown, or else hostilely regarded, that Kuhn's book became so important. It's a very thin version of historical materialism.
0: It seems to me there's a, there's a cottage industry in non-Marxist mining and repackaging Marxing. Like you look at say economic theory, you got Joseph Schumpeter and his creative destruction. I know that he read Marx and they just package it in a, in a way that becomes more politically uh, viable or put it into a more right-wing context and they can create a, a long-lasting career off the back of Marx.
1: You, you can find many, many examples of this, yeah. yeah.
0: So Helena, can you tell me about what it was like then going over and studying in, in Soviet Union? Was it the
1: 1980s you were there, or the 70s? 70s. What was the vibe like there? Um, well, it was f- f- quite fascinating. I've written another book, which isn't published yet, which is in part the story of the writing of, you know, my book about Marxism and science. And it was about what it was like to, to go to the Soviet Union and to live there and to do the research there. And uh, it was quite fascinating. Um, On many levels. Uh, On one level, you know, if you were a Marxist in the West, uh, I was at Trinity College at the time, and, you know, I was so marginalized. And uh, there I went to the Soviet Union where my worldview was in power. Of course, it being in power was also problematic. Because um, as I've come to think of it now, there shouldn't be an official worldview of either a university or a state. There needs to be space for contending worldviews. And, you know, these things can't really be enforced by state power. But at the time, I hadn't really thought that through in that way. And um, it was great just being in a country where Marxism was in power, where it was taken seriously. And uh, not only by the state itself, but by the whole university system and their whole research system and the Academy of Sciences. There were so many people who were experts in so many different areas of Marxism. And the society itself was supposed to be Marxism in practice. And I was kind of fascinated with studying that, uh, just seeing it in terms of the texture of everyday life insofar as I could during the months that I was there, not only speaking to the representatives of the Communist Party and the official philosophers, but just, you know, meeting a lot of people outside party structures and asking them about their everyday lives and, and what they thought about, you know, everything and what they thought about Marxism. I just found it a big, a great adventure. I just woke up every day with so much to discover, both in terms of my research. I was researching those debates of the 1920s when I was there, but just in terms of thinking my way through what kind of a society was the Soviet Union in the 1970s. You know, I was quite relentlessly honest in the way I did it. I didn't always come to the conclusions (laughs) to which I wanted to come. I came across a lot of the people who were the precursors of uh, um, and that gave me a lot of hope uh, about the future of the Soviet Union. So it was absolutely fascinating. It was a great adventure.
0: In, in your book, you detail a lot of the Stalinist period where people started disappearing and ended up going to the Gulag or whatever or worse, and how it affected you know, the philosophers in different universities and stuff like that. I thought your writing was very good. There's some very strong words in there. You know, my generation, there's nobody has been to the Soviet Union. I feel like it was a kind of a, a great disaster, the Soviet Union, for Marxism. How, how do you feel about it?
1: I feel overall, throughout its, uh, the decades of its history, overall, I think there's more to defend than to denounce. I was always pro-Soviet um, and still am which didn't keep me from being called anti-Soviet within the Communist Party. Um, I was critically pro-Soviet. I saw a lot that was uh, deeply disturbing. In fact, a lot of what I wrote really shook me very deeply. It just shook me to the depths at times, if I'm honest, Uh, particularly the parts to which you're referring about how the debates about philosophy and science were connected to the purges. And I had to imagine for myself the whole texture of everyday life, not only for the philosophers and scientists, but, you know, everybody in the Soviet Union during that time. It was very disturbing. And I had to think about the reasons for it. Um, I didn't think it was um, simply because Stalin was a megalomaniac. I think he became one. But I think that, you know, this reached too wide uh, too widely and too deeply into the society and and you know nothing that big can be explained by what any one man was or wasn't. So I had to think about that and I think that a lot of it had to do with the Soviet Union, with Russia at the time of the revolution being underdeveloped with this big gap developing uh, between the goals they wanted to achieve and the level of development that they actually had achieved. There was a kind of frenzy that set in about that. There was also, there also the conditions of hostile encirclement. And, you know, in, into that there were some very real debates. Um, for example, I dealt with the whole Lysenko controversy. But, you know, it, it wasn't just that, you know, Lysenko was a, a charlatan and he falsified scientific results or he was, you know, just uh, under so much pressure to produce, you know, new forms of winter wheat and all of that. It's that there were very real tensions between nature and nurture, between heredity and environment that had played out before and are still playing itself out now. And uh, there was also, in the highest science hadn't yet been resolved, between genetics and evolutionary theory. And all that came into play all at once. So, you know, I tried to do my best to articulate the complexity of all of that, but not to shrink from the very real tragedy of it. A lot of the tragedy was rooted in, in very, you know, progressive impulses.
0: I found a new communist podcast that I really like called Swampside Chats. If you're interested, you should check it out. It's very, very good. And it, they were discussing, you know, how Marxists talk about the system and the politics and all that. But then when they look at, say, someone like Stalin, they revert to the great man idea of history. Exactly. It struck me quite hard because I think, you know, probably a lot of the same flaws were starting to become evident from my limited knowledge from some of Lenin's actions. And it struck me thinking about it a lot now over the last weeks. that it seems like a lot of the problems that developed in the Soviet system, they had managed to perform a revolution and take power and state power. But the country was not sufficiently socialist or communist that it was impossible for them to do things without force because force was their only way of doing it when people weren't exactly on their side largely probably maybe in the in the peasant areas and that the only option they had was either not to be radical if they wanted to be radical they had to be brutal the seeds were sown in it
1: yeah, this was a debate, this is a debate in the whole, you know, history of Marxism and it's, you know, it's it's popped up again in dealing with the whole centenary of the uh, October Revolution to which we've been devoting a lot of time and attention in the past year and uh, this was the, what you've articulated there is the Bolshevik argument, uh, that Lenin, uh, was Lenin's argument at the time but I think that is something that, you know, subsequent generations of Marxists have to uh, cast a critical eye on. Uh, I think that you know they 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 said that and they did that in good faith uh, and for good reasons. But I think a lot of the subsequent history of this it sowed the seeds of a lot of the tragedies of the subsequent history of the Soviet Union. And uh, I think that you know whatever about what the Bolsheviks did or should have done, that we have to put the emphasis on winning consent. We can't you can't bring socialism in by force. Yeah, and it seems to me to be like that. Let's assume the best of people.
0: That they had, did these radical and many times brutal acts, then justifies the means type of thinking. That it seems to be for all these experts like Lenin, who have read Marx and studied and written works on dialectical materialism and Stalin, who has his short book on dialectical materialism, that it wasn't very dialectical thinking.
1: Sometimes yes, it's true, and and I think this whole thing about whether the end justifies the means uh, is very problematic as well. But I think that's that that they went with that, yeah.
0: And the other thing is, just from my own personal life experience, I, I I've worked in different corporations and stuff, and what I've found a lot of times is that like how crappy a place to is to work, it tends to come from the top, the ethos or just the general feel in a place and the way people are treated tends to filter from the top and the philosophy of the capitalist firm or whatever yes it's true yeah similarly this idea of how can a party suddenly attract a whole lot of people that are willing to do this type of stuff like it feels like that there had to have been some kind of problem with that organization the bolshevik organization from the get-go that it, it could attract people willing to do such things that Maybe that's, maybe I'm, I'm thinking of too much of an idealistic point of view that it, it, it just comes from the top. But I think the thing with Marx is that people do have the ability to act in history. So it's not just all determined, but it just feels like to me that it's a combination of the two.
1: Well, the Bolsheviks and then later the Communist Party of the Soviet Union and other Communist parties, they attracted different people at different stages of the development. Now, you know, when they were an underground illegal organization, they attracted people that were willing to engage in, you know, considerable self-sacrifice for their ideals, Um, They also, you know, developed, you know, habits of conspiracy and illegality, you know, that, you know, became problematic when they became a state. But, you know, um, on the whole, it attracted people um, of of very high caliber. The problem is in, in, in subsequent decades... After the, the Communist Party became a, became a party of power that attracted people who are careerists and opportunists and, you know, time servers and all of this, who would not have become communists in conditions of illegality. And they're the more problematic element. By the end of the Soviet Union, I believe the Communist Party was way too dominated by that type. And people who never would have become communists in conditions of uh, illegality or even difficulty but people who did it for careerist and opportunist reasons and, and that's a lot of the reasons, that's one of the reasons um, why the Soviet Union became so vulnerable. Um, a lot of the people who were involved in, in bringing it down from within were the people in the Communist Party apparatus themselves as well as, you know, the the main reason why the Soviet Union fell was the pressure of the global system on it from outside. But there were these internal forces as well. And they saw uh, a better career path for themselves on the other side of this uh, by being integrated into, you know, global capitalism. Um, And so that was an important factor in bringing the Soviet Union down in the end was the lack of really committed communists.
0: On this episode, you heard the theme tune The Order of the Pharaonic Jesters by Sunra and his orchestra, and you are now listening to Shane Brennan playing Bach's Pastoral in F Major, Part 3. We finish with Professor Sheehan reading an extract from her book Marxism and the Philosophy of Science, A Critical History, on the failings of Bolshevism and Stalinism. Please like, subscribe and leave a comment. If you are going to comment, please do it on the YouTube channel as Podomatics commenting leaves a lot to be desired. Thanks for listening and I hope you join me for the next episode of From
1: Alpha to Omega. But how to balance the historical accounts? How to weigh these events vis-a-vis what went before and what went after? The major question is that of continuity or discontinuity in assessing the relationship between Bolshevism and Stalinism. At one end of the spectrum is the continuity thesis, which has constituted the academic orthodoxy of the Western Sovietologists for many years and has been the dominant view among many anti-communist authors. Ironically close to this is the CPSU position, expressed in the reply of the Soviet journal Communists to the French communist authors, dealing with the purges, the Soviet authors declare, contrary to the allegations of the enemies of socialism, the personality cult was unable to disrupt the operation of the objective laws governing the socialist system of society. It did not alter the profoundly democratic, truly popular character of the system or the leading role played in it by the working class and its vanguard, the Communist Party. At the opposite end, There is a discontinuity thesis, enunciated most forcefully by Trotsky's 1937 declaration. The present purge draws between Bolshevism and Stalinism a whole river of blood. A somewhat intermediate position is that of Victor Serge. It is often said that the germ of all Stalinism was in Bolshevism from the beginning. Well, I have no objection. Only Bolshevism contained within it other germs a mass of other germs and those who lived through the enthusiasm of the first years of the first victorious revolution ought not to forget it to judge the living man by the death germs which the autopsy reveals in a corpse and which he married with him since birth is that very sensible on this matter Serge is probably closest to the truth despite the shallow evasions of those who are afraid to face the full consequences of it The discontinuity was enormous, for the most fundamental principles of the revolution had been flagrantly violated and overcome by arbitrariness, ignorance, and incomparable baseness. Those who made the revolution had been cruelly and cynically swept aside and replaced by a newer element, without traditions, without principles, without standards, without scruples. So much had been built and so much destroyed. The revolution had triumphed and brought equity and enlightenment on a vast scale where previously there was none. The revolution had not only pursued higher knowledge, but had drawn into the pursuit the masses that had heretofore been excluded. Perhaps they did not in every instance pursue it wisely. Perhaps some among their number were charlatans still in all. They created out of backwardness an experiment in the most advanced social forms that had yet been conceived in human history until that time. The experiment may have floundered and gone off the rails, but those who initially undertook it did so for the highest of goals and in the name of a cosmological vision that sought to harness the best possible science toward the highest of social and philosophical purposes. They sought to bring into being a new type of convergence of science, philosophy and politics.